Hello and welcome to What The Bump. My name is Jennifer. I am a labor and delivery nurse who oddly enough has no kids, yet a huge passion for informing and empowering women on all of their options surrounding their pregnancy. Join me every week as we dive in to all things prenatal, postnatal, birth, and so much more. So let's jump into today's episode. We are back for another episode of What The Bump and today we are doing a birth story, which are one of my many favorite kinds of podcasts to do. And I'm gonna be having Danielle Powers on the podcast to share her birth story. And her story is just incredible. I don't even know how else to literally describe it other than the fact that it's incredible, it's insanely powerful. She's incredible, she's powerful, she's super honest and real and raw, yet funny. And her story is just, it's so inspiring. I mean, what Danielle has been through in her life and just the things that she's faced and just, I don't know, she's incredible. So just get ready, listen closely, tune in because this podcast, you just don't want to miss it. It's, it's so good. It's so good. So let's dive in. I'm super excited. I have Danielle Powers here to share her birth story with us. So Danielle, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for being willing to share your story. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So let's just start off with like the super basics. How did you meet your partner? Um, so we met on Bumble. <laughs> um, I love it. I, uh, I'm a New Yorker. So I moved to Charlotte from New York city in 2017 in um, September. And I didn't know anyone here. I moved for work. So I did a lot of dating because it just seemed easier to date than to make friends in your thirties. Um, so I met Michael after a lot of trial and error. We met in May. Um, we were engaged four months after that and married four months after that. So it was kind of a whirlwind, but I never thought I'd believe the when you know, you know, but we knew. Yeah, I love that. I can relate to that. Me and my husband were, we met each other and were engaged within six months and then married within three. So there you go. Yeah, <laughs> Same I, timing pretty much. I, I know when you say that, I'm like, oh, I, I 100% know what you mean. They say, you know, I never believe when you know, you know, and then you meet somebody and you're like, oh, crap, I think I know. <laughs> and then everybody acts like you're insane, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> they do. They do. You definitely get some pushback, but it's okay. <laughs> awesome. So how long were you guys married when you found out you were pregnant? Um, actually that is a really good question. We found out when we were married for one year and two days. Um, so we had been trying for maybe four or five months and it was, you know, negative test, negative test, negative test. And I was starting to get really, um, just disconcerned. I, I, we'd had a loss in 2018. So, um, I was just worried at that point I was 30 I'm just thinking, is my time up? Did we wait too long? Was that loss our only pregnancy? So we'd had, I think, our fourth or fifth negative test. And it was the Friday before we were going away to celebrate our anniversary. Um, So we went away, drank a lot of wine, had a great weekend. um, But I had planned to reach out to my doctor about contacting a fertility specialist when we got back. So it was just kind of like, let's have a good time. When we get back from our trip, we'll, you know, get down to business. So got home on Sunday. Um, By Tuesday, I still hadn't gotten my period. I'd been crampy all weekend, just thinking like, oh, this is great anniversary weekend. And of course, I'm going to get my period, but never came, never came, never came. That Tuesday morning, so that was January 14th, our anniversary is the 12th. I um, just decided I was about to get in the shower. I'm like, you know what? Let me just take a test. I have another one. So I was 
totally floored. I just peeked out of the shower curtain and saw that it was positive. I ran out of the bathroom. My husband was sitting on the bed, tying his shoes, getting ready to go to work. This was just pre-COVID. And I said, Michael, and he turned around with this look on his face like, what? He said later that he thought that I was yelling at him because he, he left the toilet seat up or something. <laughs> and I just said, I'm pregnant. And he was like, you're what? And it, we had this like great moment, but then we both had to like get ready and leave for work. So it was kind of a, a weird day. I, I remember getting to work. And so I'm an executive assistant. And I walked by one of our other executives offices and saw um, another assistant in there. And I just went and I was like, I have to tell someone. And I, so I told her before I told anyone else, um, friends, family, anything. It was, it was like, I knew, Michael knew, and one coworker knew. But it was, you know, the best anniversary gift ever. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, yeah, you just, you have to tell somebody, but you don't want to like tell your family yet and everything. So sometimes you just got to tell like that random person. Yeah, yeah, less pressure. Um, and that's kind of how it was for a while. We were like, we go out to dinner and tell our server because I'd ask for a mocktail instead of a cocktail. <laughs> because after um, after a loss, it's, it's nerve wracking uh, telling people, um, you know, not that there is anything to be ashamed of. Pregnancy loss is so, so, so common. Again, absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. But it's almost like you spend, for me, the first 32 weeks of pregnancy worrying that the last one went away and, and, and when is this one going to go away too? And, um, you know, that made it even more, even more bittersweet when we, when we did find out, cause it brought up all the emotions from the previous loss. But again, we were just so, so excited. Yeah, it definitely, definitely can be very nerve wracking. And sometimes just like telling somebody just satisfies like that little part of you that wants to tell everybody it satisfies it for a little bit. And yeah, telling like random people and coworkers and stuff like that's always a good way to, to fix exactly <laughs> of wanting to tell everybody. So during your pregnancy, did you have any complications? What was like, what were the, the easiest things and then the hardest things about your pregnancy, would you say? So physically, um, I felt great. I loved being pregnant and I feel so obnoxious saying that, but I truly did. Like, I felt like my body was the strongest it ever was. I felt like it was just so beautiful. I, I felt so in tune and connected with my body and every change it went through was, was so exciting for me. Um, I, uh, I did have some pretty nasty heartburn and restless leg syndrome, which of course both would kick in at night. Um, and towards the end of pregnancy, it was worse and worse. So the, the sleeping was, was rough, but I did discover, um, a drink that helped. I would make warm almond milk with honey and cinnamon and kind of drink that almost like a latte, uh, before I went to bed or even sometimes at three, four o'clock in the morning when I was up and I couldn't sleep. Um, so, you know, those 8am zooms after being up in the morning, uh, or all, all night and early morning would be kind of hard, but that kind of is a silver lining working from home. I ended up moving. Oh, we, you know, we got to hope that nobody I work with hears this, but I moved my desk set up into our guest bedroom and I would take little cat naps in between meetings and emails and calls. Um, it, yeah. I mean, I don't know why it took me until my eighth month to do that, but um, you know, eventually we got there. Um, so, you know, the, the other struggle, I think that came with my pregnancy was was timing. We found out that we were pregnant in January of 2020, started telling people the first week of March. And by March 13th, my husband and I were both working from home. COVID was in full swing in the US. And 
I really never saw any friends, family members, or coworkers for my entire pregnancy. My father never saw me pregnant. My brother never saw me pregnant. My sister-in-law, um, my brother and my sister-in-law were three weeks behind us in their pregnancy. And, you know, you have these visions of the cute bump photos together with my sister-in-law. I love her like a sister. And I didn't get to see her. Um, and, you know, that was really hard feeling like these things that we should be celebrating. And to be perfectly honest, the attention that I wanted to be getting as a, as a pregnant woman, it's my first full-term pregnancy, um, we didn't get. And Julian will likely be our only child. Um, I have some, some health issues where I'm, I'm BRCA positive. So that's the breast cancer, uh, the gene mutation. So I had a mastectomy in 2015 to decrease my chance of my risk of breast cancer, which is 98%, you know, pre mastectomy, but it also comes with an ovarian cancer risk. Um, so I have a 70% risk of uh, ovarian cancer in my lifetime. And I had made the decision to have my um, ovaries, fallopian tubes and uterus removed by the time I turned 37. Um, again, not a doctor wouldn't recommend anybody do anything. This is just what I decided to do with my doctor um, to have the surgery as close to 40 as possible. And 37 was just the age I had in mind. I'm 35. So with Julian likely being our only child, this being our only pregnancy, it was very, very sad that I didn't get to share it with the people that I loved. So struggles with pregnancy, I think are really just symptomatic of this time, this world that we're in. There were a lot of silver linings at the end of the day, healthy pregnancy, loved being pregnant. Um, but there were definitely some, some sad, some sad times over the course of the nine months. Yeah. And I definitely think, especially being a nurse in the hospital and, you know, right now, a lot of women who are having their babies and, you know, within the last month and even the, the couple months to come have been pregnant throughout an entire quarantine. And I think that a lot of people can definitely relate to your story where you say, you know, even the attention that you wanted to get as a pregnant woman in your first pregnancy, it's such an exciting time. There's so many, you know, beautiful things about it. And you almost feel like you sometimes got chipped out on that experience. And I know that there are thousands of women who can relate to that and are feeling that exact same way. Exactly. And for me, um, I posted a lot on Instagram and Instagram stories. And some people may have thought that that was annoying or too self celebratory. If that is even a thing, um, they were welcome to not look or not follow me because I felt like I was so distanced from everyone that I love. And in order to feel like anybody was going through it with me, I, that, that's how I, how I kind of coped. And cause you do get really lovely messages and it, it does feel really good um, to know that people are along for the ride with you, even if they're not there in person and for better, or for worse, you know, there's a lot of good in, in social media, a lot of bad, but I think it did help um, connect me to people who could be a couple miles away or could be a couple, you know, in a different country or different continent. So, you know, that, that did help. Yeah. And I think that this is a topic I'm really, I was going to ask you this also, but I'm really glad that you just touched on this and, you know, you, it, it's just something that's very overlooked is pregnancy right now for so many women. And, you know, even postpartum, especially we already know it can be an isolating time. It can be super hard physically, emotionally, mentally, and 
with this quarantine, it is just, it's really hard for new moms, pregnant or postpartum to just feel like they have support, feel like they have community, feel like they have people rallying behind them, willing to support them and to be excited for them. Like you said, you felt like posting kind of gave you that feeling of like, people still got to fall along with the journey. And that's so important. I mean, pregnancy is amazing. And I, I'm really glad that you shared that. And, And, you know, especially with this only being maybe your only baby, that must have been honestly really difficult to go through during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, it was. But you know, at the end of the day, I, you, you hate to say that people have things worse, and we're lucky to be in the situation that we're in if it's not dire, but feelings are valid, no matter what they are. If you're feeling them, they're valid. And you know, d- you can't diminish things that may seem small, because other people are going through something worse. Um, we just have to all be there for each other, no matter what we're going through in these times. Right. I totally agree. So coming at, towards the more towards the end of your pregnancy, did you guys have a birth plan? What kind of like birth prep did you do? Um, so I like to say that we had birth preferences. Um, I am, like I said, I'm an executive assistant. A lot of that, uh, there's a lot of event planning. There's a lot of things that I have to have control over. And I tried to let go of that part of my personality when we started to look at what labor might look like. Um, I don't like things that I can't visualize when I've never been through them before. And if I start to focus on that, I get totally freaked out. Um, so we did do a virtual course, um, called COPA birth, I think is what it's called. Um, and we both really liked that. We would watch the videos together. We try to do one or two a week. Um, there was a nice workbook that went along with it to take the place of, of doing the class in person as we normally would. Um, but our goal was an unmedicated labor, uh, childbirth. We were um, delivering in a hospital, but wanted to labor at home for as long as possible. So those were kind of in our plans. Uh, we also hired a doula, Helen, who was uh, fantastic. So the support was was virtual with her up until our 36 week visit, which she came to our house and we safely um, went over our preferences and our, and our plan. And she gave us some coping exercises to do when things start to get really uncomfortable, uh, things to do to help labor along. So, I mean, if if there's one thing that I would tell any expectant mother, if it's a possibility is hire a doula, it's just invaluable. Like I, I cannot recommend it enough. So that was, that was super helpful. Um, But I think one thing that really did help, and that's why I like to say it's birth preferences instead of a birth plan, is no matter what you have in your head about what you'd like childbirth to look like, accept the fact that it might not go that way. So while we really wanted an unmedicated childbirth, if the pain was too much where I found it distracting, I was 100% okay with getting that epidural if I needed it. If we ended up needing a C-section, would a major surgery scare me? Absolutely. Would that more difficult recovery scare me? Absolutely. But I would be okay with it if that is what was needed in the end. And it's easy to say because, spoiler alert, I didn't need those things. Um, But kind of knowing that they would be a possibility helped me visualize something that is actually truly impossible to visualize. Yeah. And I like how you said birth preferences, because I do always try to use those words with my patients, especially because a lot of women, we can, we are very prone to being kind of like that type A, we like control. We like to know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And birth is not that way. And I have seen so many women extremely disappointed when 
the birth, their birth doesn't go that way. Like they have it set in stone in their head that this is how it's going to go. And they really haven't thought of an alternative. They haven't thought of what if I want the epidural or what if I want the C-section and I've seen so many women disappointed. And I, I think that's such a good bit of advice is to make it a birth preference and almost visualize the other routes that might happen. Because if they do, then at least you, you're a little bit more prepared. Whereas if yeah, you exactly. it and you have one way set in stone, you know, it can just come as, as a big shock and a really, it can, it can almost feel like women really feel like they fail the most. And that's not true whatsoever because mm-hmm. it's out of your control. It's out of all of our control. I mean that your baby is controlling the world before they're even in it. And sometimes they just do what they want. Yeah. And I think one of the best things that I took away from the COPA birth course that we took is that birth is natural. So whether you give birth via C-section at home, in a hospital, in a tub, on a bed, on your back, on your head, whatever you end up doing, it's birth, it's childbirth, and it's natural. And every birthing mother is a freaking rock star. So (laughs) we should all get medals no matter how we give birth. It's such an amazing thing. It's truly the best the best thing in the world to be able to see and witness birth. It's amazing. And you did mention that you had Helen as your doula and you mentioned just hiring a doula is probably one of the best things that you, you did. So if you guys, if anybody has not listened to episode 30 of the podcast, that is actually a podcast with Del with Helen, who was Danielle's doula. So go back and listen to that podcast, but I agree. Helen's amazing. All doulas are truly amazing. They're such an important part of the birth team. And I've seen, you know, many women who were, just about to give up or, you know, really struggling through birth and Helen has came in and saved the day. So I'm super happy that you got to experience birth with her because she truly is amazing. Yeah. And I was that person, you know, I had this whole plan for a um, unmedicated childbirth and just to kind of get into our childbirth story a little bit. um, I labored at home for about 24 hours. So I had my first contractions Uh, So Julian was born on September 21st. My first contractions were around eight o'clock at night on September 19th. Um, I was texting with my cousin who is a women's health physical therapist. Very good thing to have in your family. Um, And I'm texting her like, oh my gosh, I just, uh, you know, I am seeing more of my mucus plug. It's pink tinge. My back is tight. I'm feeling contractions. I'm in the bathtub. It seems to be helping. Should I, should I start timing contractions or, and she just kind of laughed at me. She has three kids of her own, I should probably say. And she's just like, get some sleep. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So, um, I went to bed that night and was up almost every hour with a contraction, but just knowing that things were kind of going along slowly. And then we had a, uh, very leisurely, next day. So that would have been Saturday, the 20th, Sunday, the 20th. Um, And it's funny in in Charlotte, there's a, um, an antique mall called sleepy poet that my husband and I love. And my mom actually made the decision to fly down to Charlotte from New York um, to be with me. You know, I said that um, none of my family had seen me pregnant and my mom and I are super close. And I think for both of our mental health, it was just kind of the risk versus reward. We made the decision that she would come and be with us. Uh, she came down a few days before my due date and um, stayed until a few days after Julian was born. Anyway, so she was with us. We walked around Sleepy Poet. I'm having contractions, walking around this antique mall. I think this guy that worked there, um, his name was Frank. He, uh, I think he had a heart attack when my mom told him I was in labor. He, I would like see him crop <laughs> up of every, every now and then around the store, like seeing if my water was going to break on some 
oriental rug or something like that. Um, but so I had my like first really big contraction in front of a booth filled with corning ware, which is that kind of like retro um, baking ware. Uh, so that's something I'll never forget. Um, anyway, so we, uh, over the course of the day, of course, things get more intensive labor as labor is progressing. Um, had dinner, proceeded to throw up dinner. Um, but then that's when my husband called Helen and she said, you know, the grosser, the closer, which is a line that I absolutely love. And she said, you guys, it's time to, time to head to the hospital. So that was pretty much exactly 24 hours after that first tight back, those first contractions. Um, we left for the hospital at 8.30, arrived at nine. <clears throat> Julian was born at 1.18 in the morning on the 21st. So everything was very fast and furious once we got to the hospital. My contractions were very, very intense. Um, no break really in between. It was just constant pain and pressure. You know, I, I kind of struggle calling it pain because yeah, it hurt, but it's, it's really just in, insane pressure, pressure, pressure. And so I was laboring in the tub in our um, delivery labor and delivery suite. And at one point I looked up at Helen and I said, is it too late for the epidural? I think I want it. And she very calmly just looked at me and said, it's not too late, but you're already through the worst of it. At this point, you would just be getting that epidural in time to push. Is that really what you want? And I said, if we're almost there, I think I can do it. But I, I did have many moments where I would look at her and say, I can't do this. I can't do this. And she was just there in my face saying, yes, you can in the most soothing way. And, um, you know, we haven't talked about my husband that much, but I, I would not have been able to do what we did without him. He was there and he and Helen made the most powerful team where he could focus on me because she was kind of handling the other things behind the scenes, communicating with the nurses and, um, just getting things in, in order for us and, and coaching Michael in how to best support me without taking over, without controlling anything. She was just, I mean, I, I, the only way I can really describe them is, is just this incredible, incredible team. Um, but the hard moments, she was right there helping me realize what I was capable of. Yeah, that's awesome. And I like how you said, um, Helen coached Michael. And that's one of the most important cool things about having a doula is that they aren't necessarily there to replace your birth support, like your spouse or your significant other, or like if you have your mom there, it's more so they're there to empower that other support person that you have. And that's amazing that she kind of was able to kind of coach him through it and really just help you through the labor. Yeah. And the poor guy, Michael was having doing constant um, counter pressure on my back for like two hours straight um, because I was feeling so, so, so much pressure basically in my butt. Um, and the only thing that was helping was having him do that counter pressure on my lower back. Um, even when I was in the tub, it's just, I, I never thought that um, I would feel childbirth so much in my butt. Yeah. Like the whole time I just felt like I was about to have the biggest poop of my life. <laughs> and I, sorry, but I, that's, that's really the best way I can describe it. Um, I and that. I actually felt the urge to push long before I was ready. So it was very, very, very intense pressure in my lower pelvic area. And, you know, that was one thing where 
it was so great having Helen there because I was in the tub and I looked at her and I, I said, and that was another thing that the Copa birth video said is that when, when you're, it was, this is kind of geared towards partners. When mom says, I feel like I need to poop. That's when you really should let the nurses know. So I looked, I remember looking at Helen and saying that, and, and she went and grabbed our nurse and said, she's really starting to bear down and she, she's pushing. So they actually, they pulled me out of the tub and um, did a cervical check. We were doing intermittent monitoring anyway. So it was, it was time to do a check. And I was, um, I think at that point I had been out of triage and in the room at, at the hospital for maybe an hour or two. Timing is blurry to me. Um, I don't know how much time had passed. He was obviously born three hours after we got to the hospital. So it wasn't that much time, but so I was nine centimeters um, but my bag was bulging. So my water had not broken yet. And it hadn't even occurred to me that my water hadn't broken yet. And they knew that it was my preference to be as intervention free as possible. So they said, listen, that bag is the only thing holding the baby in. If the doctor comes in and break it, you could be meeting your baby very soon. And I was like, break it, <laughs> break the damn bag. Like let's, let's yeah. get this going. So, um, they did. And I was actually telling someone the other day that I still with, even with a bulging bag, nine centimeters that far along in labor, I don't remember my bag. I don't, I remember the doctor breaking the bag. I don't remember my, like the water gushing out, which apparently would have been a lot. Um, but it's just not something I remember. So, um, at that point, water broke, they checked me again. I was 10 centimeters, but there was still a little bit of cervix, um, covering his head, I guess. Um, I don't know. You can correct me if that's not something that would have been. Yeah. Going we call on. it like an anterior or posterior lip is the term for it. So yeah. it be like where you're basically complete, but you have a tiny little bit either, you know, in the front or in the back, which would be anterior posterior, just a little bit of cervix left. So yeah, that, yeah. that definitely is, that definitely is correct. So they told me to, um, at this point I was out of the tub fully. I was back on the uh, delivery bed. So they suggested, getting kind of hands and knees um, with my, my arms draped over the back of the bed, the bed was in a fully inclined position um, and try and labor that way to see if we could move that little lip. So at this, this is kind of a funny anecdote. Um, you know how people pack their hospital bags with everything that they could never possibly yeah. use. So I had like the pretty floral gown. I had the bikini top in case I thought I was going to be modest, which is just not me to begin with. Um, so I didn't use any of those things. I, I labored completely nude um, the whole time. And the only time I asked for any cover was when they suggested flipping on hands and knees and as I mentioned, Michael was doing counter pressure on my lower back and I was feeling so much pressure in my butt. Even with everything going on, I asked to have a sheet over my shoulders covering my back because I was afraid I was going to poop on my husband <laughs> <laughs> in that hands and knees position. And I just, I don't, I don't remember if I told him that's why I asked for the sheet like at that point or if it's something that I told him afterwards. But it's just like all of a sudden I'm modest. No, I couldn't care less. I just don't want to poop on my husband after everything else that is going on. And I will so, say that that like feeling that urge of poop is 
extremely common. I, even women with epidurals, I always say, when you feel like you have to poop, and especially when you feel like it's kind of constant, you let me know. Because I would say 99% of women, that's what they say when they're ready to have the baby is I feel like I need to poop. And when you don't have an epidural, you definitely feel that earlier on because you do feel obviously a ton more of that pressure. But it's very, very normal for you to feel that. And I always tell people, you don't have to poop, I promise. It's just the baby's head getting really low and really pushing. But I also will say adding to that hands and knees, no matter how like open you are and how not modest you are, hands and knees is just a position that I feel like every single woman at some point just feels, let me think of the word I'm trying to say, like, so exposed in exposed. So even like my woman who are laboring naturally in their, you know, not wearing clothes whatsoever the entire time, the minute they go hands and knees, I always put a sheet over their back because something about hands and knees, it's just a vulnerable position. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, since we're on the topic of poop, um, one thing that I would recommend to any laboring woman, whether epidural or not, is getting that mirror. Um, so you can see what's going on because when I, when they had me flip back over, um, so I, I delivered on my back, but not reclined, if that makes sense. So I was kind of sitting up with my knees up and, and pushing that way. So because I was feeling so much pressure, I'm pushing, pushing, pushing. And I looked at Helen and I said, am I just pooping and pooping and pooping right now? And she and the, um, the nurse looked at each other, they laughed and they're like, no, you haven't, you haven't pooped at all. That's just the baby. And then they said, and I had, I had added in my um, birth plan that if it was available, I did want the mirror because a girlfriend of mine said that it was very encouraging to see the, the progress that you're making. So that when I asked about, I mean, you know, am I pooping or what? They said, let's get the mirror in. And once that mirror was there, it was like game on. As soon as I could see the progress that each push was making in the mirror, because, you know, the you push and push and push and the head come like come, crowns a little bit, it goes more and more and more. And then as soon as you stop pushing, it goes back. But then the next push more and more and more and more. And then it goes back. And just seeing the progress made me, I pushed for 20 minutes. So, and it, having the mirror there is really, I think what, what helped me see and, and feel like I could really do this because I could see baby <laughs> coming out. Yeah. 20 minutes is definitely, that's an incredible push time for your first baby. Many women push much longer than that. And I love the mirror as well. I think it's amazing. Some people are like, absolutely. Like I always offer and Some women are like, absolutely not. I do not <laughs> want to see what's happening down there. No way. But I love sometimes, especially when you're pushing for a lot longer than 20 minutes, you know, when you're hitting that one, two, even three hour mark, that little bit of motivation of letting a mom see, you know, look, this is what's happening when you're pushing and this is how much progress and this is how close we are. That little bit of extra effort that that motivation gives them can make such a big difference when it comes to pushing. And I would yeah. well, if they're willing, some people again, like the mirror, like absolutely not. But sometimes if we're really close. I'll be like, just reach down and just touch, touch the head. And some people like that alone, the next push, they get the baby out. So yeah. that's another thing that I think is huge for motivation, but that's sometimes what you need. You just need a little bit of motivation because it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. And at one point I looked down and it, I mean, it looked like the whole baby was out like head back, everything. And I, I said, is he out? Or I didn't say he, because we didn't know what we were having. Um, so I said, is it out? And Helen and the nurse are like, you're nearly there. You're ne nearly there. But he, it looked like he was completely out. And 
the one moment that I actually got a little hysterical, I said, well, just pull him out already. And the doctor stood up and she said, I'm going to need you to get your breathing under control and calm down a little bit. I said, okay, one more push and he was out. And that feeling when they're out, it's just this like slippery, blobby relief. And it's just like, unlike anything you can imagine, it's just everything in you just goes, and then there's this (laughs) crying. And it's really just this amazing feeling. And um, another benefit of having Helen there as our doula is that she somehow, you know, she was there holding my feet. And then all of a sudden she was behind us taking pictures because I never saw her take these pictures, but there they were. And with iPhones now, you can have the live photos. So when we see the live photos and it's almost like little mini videos of what was happening, um, it's really, it's really incredible. But man, some of those sounds that I was making, who at one point in, in a live video, you hear me say, or a live photo, you hear me say, man, I'm going to be hoarse after that. It's just these, you know, guttural, animalistic, <laughs> primal sounds, but I I apologized to our delivery nurse after I said, I feel like I was getting a little dramatic there. And she said, that was not dramatic. That's what it sounds like to get a baby out. So that was kind of cool. Yes, it's true. (laughs) How many, I I do want to backtrack one question. How many centimeters were you when you actually got to the hospital? Four. Um, And leading up to that, I had only been, I think I had my first cervical check at 35 and a half weeks. Um, and then I had another one at 37 weeks and then kind of weekly up until 40 weeks. And, um, I never got past one centimeter before going into labor. So I had been to my doctor on Tuesday, one centimeter. Um, every visit, they did say that the baby was very, very low and that my cervix was very, very thin, but I was not very dilated. So to anyone that's gets discouraged when you go in for cervical checks and you're not dilated and you're nearing that 39, 40 week point, that was the difference from Tuesday to, to Friday. So it, it happened so fast. Um, so when I got to the hospital, I was four centimeters by the time I got out of triage, which was about 45 minutes later, um, I was seven. So it was really, things were happening fast. Yeah. Anything else to add from your actual like labor and delivery before we jump into kind of the postpartum period? Um, you know, I, I mentioned the, the hospital bag. We were, you know, concerned that we didn't have a playlist. We didn't have a diffuser. Helen brought an oil diffuser and twinkly lights that made the room really nice and, and calming and pretty. But all those things you think you need, once you're there, you will not give a crap about what's in your hospital bag. You're just there, you're on a mission and um, yeah, nothing else matters. You kind of got, for me, at least I went into this trance like state and um, in the moment it's crazy. And as soon as it's over, you feel like a freaking superwoman. I, you know, I've never been so proud of what my body can accomplish. Yeah, that's amazing. And did you feel like there was any like huge, I know you probably like, you don't have a prior birth to compare it to, but do you feel like there was any huge differences as far as like hospital laboring during the pandemic besides visitor restrictions? Um, well, we had to get a COVID test. I had to get a COVID test as soon as we got to triage, um, which, you know, we had such an amazing experience. I delivered at, um, 
at Novant Presbyterian Uptown Charlotte. And the hospital was so great, but we got to triage and our nurse said, um, you may be in this room for three hours because that's how long it takes to get a COVID test. And I looked at Michael and I was like, I'm not gonna last in this room for three hours. You know, the triage rooms are tiny. There's no bathroom. I had already thrown up twice. Um, I was just like, I, 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 it was so discouraging. I felt like telling me that could have just stopped my labor in its tracks. Um, as it turns out, as soon as our delivery nurse came in, Helen was there. They took one look at me. They were like, we're getting you into a room. I, I got my COVID results at 2 a.m. Julian was born at 1.18. So they kind of fast paced us a little bit, I think because we had to. I, I was going to be giving birth in triage if we didn't. Um, but that COVID test, the fact that Michael had to wear a mask, um, which for him I, I probably wasn't the most comfortable thing. Other than that, you know, everybody's just doing what they can. I, 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 you're right, I don't have any prior experience. Um, I don't think we would have had anybody else in the room with us or visitors um, anyway. Right. Um, so that wasn't really, I know that that can be very disappointing for families, but for, for us, that didn't really make a difference. Um, just the added stress of what could I potentially be exposing myself to our newborn baby to, but you know, you're just, again, there on a mission and everything else kind of goes to the wayside and you don't dwell on those things. Right. And like you said, I mean, we're all just doing the best we can to get through it and trying to, you know, maintain the most normal environment we can, especially when it comes to labor, you want to maintain the most normal and welcoming and calm environment for a laboring woman that you can with everything else going on around. So I'm glad to hear that you, you felt like it kind of, you know, besides the masks and the restrictions and stuff, it wasn't, it wasn't too terrible. It wasn't too terrible. And it is funny when the nurse gave me the COVID test, I hadn't had a COVID test before. So, and you know, you see the photos and everything, the infographics of the swabs going up the nose and it looks like it's tickling the brain. Um, but there I am in the middle of very, very intense contractions. And she gives me the COVID test. And I said, oh, that wasn't that bad. And she said, you are the first person I have ever heard say that. I was like, well, I kind of have a little bit more going on right now. <laughs> right. You're like, I have more so, to focus on. <laughs> Yeah. And I have had one more COVID test since. And again, I, I don't think it's that bad, but that's just me. <laughs> right. So tell me about postpartum. How was your healing? How was the postpartum period for you? Um, so I did tear. I had a second degree tear, um, which I know a lot of people are terrified of tearing. It's not something I really thought about too much because I just thought if I'm going to tear, I'm going to tear. Um, and I didn't even realize I tore until I heard the doctor say something to the nurse about stitching me up. And I was like, Oh yeah, that was a possibility. Is it bad? And she was like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, we, she just kind of got in there. It wasn't terrible. Um, you know, we stocked up with all of the packs, the ice packs, the perineal foam, the witch hazel, the padsicles, all that good stuff. Um, I did have a vulvar hematoma, so I basically had a huge bruise that went from my, you know, I have to think about who might listen to this if any of I send it to anyone <laughs> outside of friends and family, but here goes. I had a giant bruise from my butt to um, my vulva and that really hurt. And it, it you know, it, it hurt to sit, it hurt to stand, it hurt to walk. And until that bruise started to break up a little bit, it was, it was very uncomfortable. Um, 
as far as kind of the immediate, I I was hooked up to an IV um, in our room because I kept um, fainting. I kept blacking out every time I stood up. I would go to the bathroom. The nurses would come with me and they'd have to have smelling salts because I would just black out and not be able to get up. And so that was a little bit tough just being hooked up to the IV the whole time we were in our room because I felt scared. I, well, I wasn't allowed to get up without a nurse present for the first um, few hours we were there. We were in the hospital. We, I think we left just over 24 hours after Julian was born. So we were not there very long. But, um, you know, that, that wasn't great. Michael did a lot of, did all of the changing and feeding um, when we were in the hospital, just because I was, I was nervous. The last thing I wanted was to get up and be holding him and, and faint. So um, that was, that was hard. Otherwise, you know, you're just kind of in this euphoric state. Um, and I think that that's something that our bodies probably naturally do to get us through those really, really difficult first, first few hours. Um, now that we are 12 and a half weeks out, um, I can say, have the conversation with your partners about postpartum depression before you give birth. I um, now I'm about a month and a half into treatment where I'm, I'm taking Zoloft, I'm in therapy, and we were able to notice the signs of postpartum depression very early on. We, we addressed it um, at Julian's four-week visit with his pediatrician. And uh, the reason we were able to, to recognize it so soon is because Michael and I did have very serious conversations about postpartum depression but well before Julian was born. Um, so, I mean, this, this has been a, a absolutely beautiful time. I got the childbirth experience that I wanted. I have a perfectly healthy boy. I have a husband who is better than any, and I still have postpartum depression. So it's so common. Um, it's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of, but it is very, very real. And I think preparing for it is just as important as preparing the nursery and getting all the cute stuff. You know, you have to prepare to take care of yourself mentally and physically after childbirth. And I think a lot of people do not consider what mom is going to need emotionally and mentally um, because everything else just seems so much more important. I completely agree with that. I harp very heavily in my discharge teaching with parents, especially first time moms, that postpartum depression, you know, I, I really differentiate between the postpartum like baby blues, which are normal. And it's just where, you know, you're exhausted and everything like that. And I really harp on the difference between that and postpartum depression, because postpartum depression is something that for so long, there was such a stigma with people didn't want to talk about it. Almost, it seemed like they didn't want to believe it was a real thing. And it is, it doesn't matter if you've suffered with mental health and depression your entire life, or you've never, you know, had even an ounce of depression. It doesn't matter postpartum, it picks who it wants. And it isn't, it's not even you, it's, it's physical. I mean, there's so many hormonal changes, mental changes, physical changes, role changes with your life and postpartum depression can affect truly anybody and being able to talk about it and not making it feel like it's something like you said to be ashamed of is a huge thing because it really can happen to anybody and it's 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 extremely common but common doesn't mean that it's normal because I feel like a lot of people think that it's common to feel like that after having a baby but there's such a difference between just because it's common does not mean that it's normal does not mean that you should be feeling like that or you need to keep on feeling like that or live feeling like that and getting help and you know talking to your OB or even like you said you recognize it at a pediatrician follow-up 
that that's just, these are such important things for women to, to realize and to feel empowered and their partners to be able to look out for this in them. Yeah. I mean, there, there were two things um, specifically that I remember being kind of a, a red flag for me where I'm like, this, this isn't okay. Um, Julian was crying with me and um, I handed him over to Michael and he stopped crying. And I immediately felt like my son hates me and that he and Michael would be better off if I just left oh, wow. and that I should just pack up my bags and, and leave them because their lives would be better off without me. That is a devastating thought for someone with a one week old to have mm-hmm. two week old, whatever, whatever the timing was. That is, a, and I, you know, I feel sorry for myself that I felt that way. I feel sorry for anyone who has felt that way or any of these other intrusive thoughts that are, that are common with postpartum depression. But as soon as I had that thought, like, of course my son and my husband would not be better off without me. That's, that's absurd, but it felt so real in that moment. Um, so there was, there was that thought. And then this is a little bit funnier. I know we're on like, it, this is a very serious subject, but it, this is kind of funny. It wasn't funny in the moment in hindsight, he got a laugh. I um, was eating out of a container of, um, I think it was quinoa salad or tabbouleh or something. And I was just shoveling forkfuls of it in before going to change Julian. And I put the fork in the sink and Michael was standing there in the kitchen and he was just like, oh, you know, could you put that in the dishwasher instead of the sink? I lost it, lost it. Started crying that he was criticizing me. I went into the bedroom with Julian and I I cried for four hours. And then the next day I thought back to how upset I got about the stupid fork in the, in the sink. And then I cried for another four hours because of how upset that I was. Again, it's not funny. It's very real and it's very scary. Um, Now that I'm feeling better, I can realize how, again, absurd that was, but these are, these are really real overreactions. And I I use that, you know, with air quotes because they're not, Um, but kind of realizing when you're acting or feeling in a way that just doesn't seem right and, and giving your partner the freedom to, to point those things out too. Um, I did again, kind of funny after when I was in the bedroom crying, I texted my brother whose wife was, was due uh, with their baby in the next week or two. And I said, word to the wise, do not criticize anything Michelle does in the first months after giving birth. And he just, you know, said, you know, noted, but these poor guys, I mean, Michael is a phenomenal husband. He does not criticize me. He was not criticizing me. He was merely asking me to put a fork in the dishwasher instead of the sink. But, you know, the hormones, man, the hormones, (laughs) the hormones and just all the other changes that come with it. And thank you so much for even just sharing that your entire kind of journey with postpartum depression and those, those stories, because I am sure that there are so many women who can relate to that, who are experiencing that, who have experienced that or you know, who are going to give birth soon and are really nervous about experiencing this. And the more that we talk about it, the more people are open to receiving help and are aware of the signs and symptoms to look for with it. So thank you so much just for being willing and being really vulnerable about sharing that. I mean, I know that can be a really hard thing to open up about and to share. And I can't imagine how many women 
that you are able to help just by sharing that and just being able to say, you know, especially in the future, like I was there, I've been through that and you're able to offer, you know, so much help and so much advice through that. Yeah, that's the goal, right? That is the goal. So you said that um, you had a bilateral mastectomy, is that right? Yes. Yep. Okay. So did you, um, did you bottle feed? Did you end up getting donor milk? How did you go about that? Uh, both. So I, um, I don't have any breast tissue, so I don't have mammary glands. So breastfeeding was never going to be a possibility for me. So, um, we formula feed and also through Helen's network of amazing moms, um, I was able to get, um, a fair amount of, of donor milk. Um, I also have a, a very, very good friend in Charlotte, um, who provided some as well. Michael's cousin's wife actually sent us some, they live in Massachusetts and she shipped us some of her frozen breast milk. So our baby is being nourished, um, you know, as best as we can. And he's thriving formula donor milk and lots and lots of love. But I do, I love the fact that he's being nourished by some of my good friends, some family members. It's, it's really special. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm 35. I had a mastectomy at 30 when children were nowhere near in my future. Um, and that was a decision I had to make at the time. Do I have this surgery now and give up, uh, being able to breastfeed down the road or do I wait and see if, you know, maybe I meet someone and, and have a baby in the next couple of years and, and wait to breastfeed. But my, um, my stepmom actually pointed out that she wasn't able to breastfeed with, I think it was three out of her four kids or two out of her four kids. And wouldn't, it would be such a tragedy if I waited to have this surgery when I'm at such a high risk for breast cancer, if I waited to have the surgery so that I could breastfeed hypothetical children, and then I ended up with breast cancer. So that was kind of something that put things into perspective for me. It didn't make it any more any less heartbreaking. Um, you know, as I got closer and closer to my due date, I was starting to feel like my baby was going to miss out, that I was going to be able that I was going to miss out on that bond. Um, but, you know, breastfeeding is beautiful and wonderful. Formula feeding is beautiful and wonderful. As long as that baby is fed, you're good. And I would I have loved to have tried to breastfeed. I know it doesn't work for everyone. Um, yeah, that would have been great. Um, but you know, I say how wonderful Michael is. Um, he, there was one day where I think we were home with Julian for maybe three days, two days, and I was doing skin on skin and Julian tried to latch, which was really hard for me. Um, I felt like I was letting him down and I tearfully told Michael about it and asked him to take the baby because it was just hurting me too much, not physically, you know, emotionally. And, um, he said, he's here because you made a decision that saved your life. You, you potentially could have ended up with a deadly cancer and he would never be here because of that. So you saved your life so he could have one he's never going to miss the fact that you didn't breastfeed him. Yeah, and it, it was a really amazing thing that, that he said, and it's true. So um, again, you know, fed is best. Um, anything that anybody has to do to nourish their baby, do it. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. Fed is definitely best no matter how that baby's fed. Whatever is best for you and for that baby and whatever works the best is is the best. And I love that your husband said that because that is so true. You made that decision that was not taken lightly. That's an extremely hard decision to make. And like you said, I mean, you you chose to make that to save your life so that way you could create his life. And who knows, had you not made that decision, if you would even be able to you know, have a baby, you don't know if you would have developed breast cancer. So that's, that's an amazing story. And gosh, I feel like I could sit here and like pick your brain and just keep diving deeper into <laughs> your story. Truly it's amazing. I really have loved hearing you tell this story. It's been incredible. We can do a part two anytime. Yeah. I think I could do like a part three and four. I could keep you here all day. Like <laughs> I have so many questions. There's so many things I like want to ask you along the way that we've talked about that. Gosh, your story is just, it's incredible. Truly Danielle, like it's amazing. And you just, yeah, I don't know. It's just incredible. You've came so far through your entire story and it's just, it's awesome. And I'm so happy for you guys. And it's just, it's a great story. It really is. Well, thank you. So any other things to add before you share with me? The last question that I have is just your top two tips or like bits of advice, I guess you could say for new moms or moms to be. Um, I think the top tips I kind of, um, touched on, well, or, you know, really talked about, um, doulas hundred percent. If, if one's available to you, if it's, you know, um, feasible in all the ways that hiring someone is, um, do it. Um, it was an invaluable resource that we had. And I think all doulas I'm sure are amazing, but Helen, shout out to Helen. She is just the coolest woman through and through. Like there's not an ounce of negativity in that body. I don't know how she does what she does, but she is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and again, I like, just can't stress enough having the conversations about postpartum depression early and often, um, just so everybody's prepared because you really, you can't prepare for anything. You can't prepare for anything when it comes to, to childbirth and bringing a baby home. And there's so much out there. Social media is so great because there are so many informational resources that you can find on Instagram. Um, But at the same time, comparison is the thief of joy. And there is for sure an oversaturation of people comparing experiences. And what, what is that saying when it comes to Instagram? Like somebody else's feed is their highlight reel, not their not there. Yeah, like it's not their actual life. It's just a highlight. Real right. Life. Right. So yeah, I mean, I guess one of the other tips is to, to use these resources for the information that you need, but, but don't get too bogged down in it because you will find the people that are like, you know, sleep training versus not sleep training, bottle feeding versus breastfeeding. Like everybody has an opinion and great. Get the, all the information that you can, but make the best decisions for your family. Um, because I'll say it again, and and actually a friend who is a pediatric nurse said this to me, comparison is the thief of joy. Do not compare your experience with anyone else's. And, you know, we're having this conversation. You have this awesome podcast where I know that you do share a lot of birth stories. It's informational. No one should compare their experience or their future potential experience to mine. This is just what my experience was. Um, so just at the end of the day, do the best thing for yourself, for your family, be your own advocate, have the conversations early 
and uh, trust your partner to be there for you and be there for them. Yeah, that's all amazing. The more you look at other people's lives, especially through the lens of social media, because everybody is sharing the amazing successes over social media. Nobody is sharing the hard things. Nobody is sharing, you know, the rock bottom because it just, it's not pretty. And that's what social media is. It's, it's a highlight reel. So it's great to follow all these accounts and to learn so many things and watch YouTubes and podcasts and everything like that. But like you said, I mean, if you compare yourself and have these high expectations, it's just, it's really easy to be let down. So just knowing that your story is so unique and your plan, your birth, your pregnancy, your labor, your delivery is going to work out in the exact way that it needs to. And that's what makes it so beautiful, right? Like it, it wouldn't be special if we were all the same. Nope. Um, and having been through it now and, and almost three months out of it, giving birth is one of the best things I've ever done. Um, and I, I think every mom should be able to say that. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I definitely think I'm going to have to have you back because there's just so many things of your story that were amazing that I think I could have just like taken you down a rabbit hole with me down. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing and just being vulnerable. And I really appreciate it. Your story has been absolutely amazing to hear. And I'm super honored that you were willing to come on my podcast and share it to the listeners. And thank you for having me. This really was fun. Um, almost like a walk down memory lane, trying to jog my jog my memory of all of these things when I'm sleep deprived and a few months out. And, you know, it's the more we talk about our experiences, the better we remember them, right? Yes. And you're here. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you next week to talk more about The Bump. And of course, I know you all probably know this, but I have to add it in. I make every effort to broadcast correct information through this podcast, but I'm still learning so much. So I am in no way providing medical advice through this podcast, just sharing the things that myself and others have experienced or learned. Make sure to consult your physician before taking anything from this podcast and changing your health. This applies to any guests or contributors that I also have on this podcast. Thank you. And I will see you next week.